Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Liebel at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Carrie L. Haney, Dr. Beth Reingold, and Dr. Kirsten Widener to discuss their book, Race, Gender, and Political Representation Toward a More Intersectional Approach, published by Oxford University Press in 2021 and awarded the 2021 Richard Fenno Jr. Prize for the best book in legislative studies. How do gender and race interact to affect the election, behavior, and impact of individuals, of all individuals, raced women, and gendered minorities alike? According to our authors, what we know depends mightily on how we go about obtaining that knowledge. Political scientists have often assumed that there are no gender differences among minority representatives and no racial differences among female representatives. Race, gender, and political representation examines how and to what extent political representation is simultaneously gendered and raced in the context of late 20th and early 21st century U.S. legislatures. Haney, Reingold, and Widener examine how gender and race interact to affect the election, behavior, and impact of individual state legislators. The analysis and their substantive findings demonstrate how intersectionality as a critical epistemology compels us to reevaluate the study of race, gender, and representation. Without critically evaluating single-axis women in politics and race and ethnic politics theories about descriptive representation, we miss the differences in obstacles to election, substantive policy contributions, or policy leadership styles among white women, men of color, and women of color. The book aims to give us both a more nuanced understanding of representation and an intersectional toolkit that others can use to answer critical political questions. Dr. Carrie L. Haney is professor and chair of political science and professor of African and African-American studies at Duke University. His many books and articles interrogate how the underlying theory, structures, and practices of American political institutions affect African-Americans and women's efforts to organize and exert influence on the political system. Dr. Beth Reingold, an associate professor of political science and women's gender and sexuality studies at Emory University. Her previous books and articles engage questions about the complex relationships between gender, race, ethnicity, and political representation, primarily in and around legislative institutions in United States states. Dr. Kirsten Widener is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. As a lawyer, she represented children in the child welfare and juvenile justice systems and taught in the public policy and legislative advocacy clinics at Emory Law School. She helped advocate for laws in Georgia to address child abuse, human trafficking, and adoption. As a political scientist, she focuses on how laws and policies that affect marginalized groups are made with a particular interest in the political representation of people without the right to vote, children, non-citizens, and people disenfranchised due to criminal convictions or mental incapacity. Her work has been published in both political science journals and law reviews. I'm delighted to welcome Carrie Beth and Kirsten to the New Books Network. Thank you. We're absolutely thrilled to be here. Thanks for having us, yes. So the book opens by reminding readers of the first year of the woman in 1992 and the recent 2018 U.S. midterms that have often been called the second year of the woman. 
And, and you note that those t- titles imply that these elections were transformational, that the election of more women means something in terms of power and policy. But then you quickly note that celebrating and studying the election of women results in ignoring differences among those women, particularly the success and contributions of women of color. And it's as if there are no racial differences among the female representatives or no gender differences among minority representatives. So there's a lot of research on political representation that you respect and build upon in the book. Um, So I'd like to start with how you see the state of the field in terms of the questions that had been asked and the methods being used to answer those questions. And then we'll talk about how the three of you came together to create a new approach and and how you frame that approach. Uh, I'll start with that and and, and I'll give a brief story of my coming to Duke uh, from Rutgers University. I was doing a job interview, giving a job talk on a paper on some topic. But the first question after I finished my presentation was on uh, an article that I published with a colleague on race and gender and representation in state legislatures. In that study, we found that uh, African-Americans introduced more African-American interest bills than did white legislators, and that women introduced more women's interest bills than did men. We had a footnote, a finding in a footnote, where it was like Black women seemed to introduce fewer Black interest bills than Black men, and fewer women's interest bills than women. Uh, the question in this job interview, 10 years after this article was published, <laughs> was what about that footnote in this article, right, that you have this finding about Black women? And, you know, and we sort of thought that was interesting, but didn't do anything with it other than pun it and say we can get to this later. Uh, and that, for me, raised this notion of this intersectionality, right? Black women are at the same time, right? They are Black and they're women. Uh, And the way we had done this study was the way most of these studies were being done at the time was to do this single axis approach, look at race and gender. And we learned something from that approach uh, and those studies, uh, but it wasn't enough to get at all that was going on in the institutions. Yeah, I would say in in terms of the the state of the field right now, uh, sort of long, which is long after we got started, I mean, in some ways, it, it's not. It's perhaps it's not as different as as we might have hoped. Um, in that, uh, single axis frameworks, I think, are still very prevalent. Um, although, you know, we're seeing we are seeing more and more intersectional research as well. And so, you know, when it finally came time to present to present our work. Um, it wasn't only that we wanted to, it, you know, we didn't feel like we were the first to introduce, you know, uh, intersectionality or even to ask the, the kinds of questions that we were asking. But rather, I think one of our, one of our main contributions was to demonstrate um, how the two can really come together uh, and 
because I, 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 I productively, um, especially I think when um, in the context of quantitative research, which is uh, sort of predominant um, in the field, um, and and so it kind of um, what our hope is is I think I think one reason why there's not as much intersectional research as as we would like is that people are, are it's it's very intimidating <laughs> Uh, you know, everybody, Wendy Smooth, you know, famously said, uh, you know, it's a mess, but it's a mess worth making. <laughs> and that messiness, the, the, the sort of call for complexity that intersectionality is, it, it's very hard to do, much less imagine. You know how how do we how can we go about doing this without sort of losing the the coherence you know that that we need uh, for empirical research um, and so uh, you know this is kind of how we see ourselves sort of entering into the field and and um, and. Um, helping it along, I guess, if, if you will. And, and I think that comes across in the book. In one of the things that I love about how you do describe where the field is, is that it's a very, very respectful overview. You, you are saying what is excellent and important about each and every contribution. This is not the kind of trashing, which I think is easier to do to say, here's why we're so much better. Here's why we're so much different. That's really not there. Instead, what you're saying is, this is really excellent research, but some of the questions are asked such that you don't actually get the answer that corresponds with reality. And to do that, you not only need to rethink the questions and the terms, but the methods. And I don't think most people are situated, but before we started recording, I admitted to Carrie how intimidated I always am by these kinds of quantitative books. I, I, I don't do quantitative methods. I have friends who do, but so I think I understand enough to do it. But what I think is important about this book for all readers, and I, and I really want to welcome everyone to pick up this book, because this is, this is an important book for everyone in political science, not just the people who study state legislators and, and the ways that they behave. This is a very, very important book for everyone who is thinking about asking questions in political science. How do we ask them and how do the methods that we use to answer them skew our answers. And you don't pretend that you found the way to go. You're very careful to say that it's fluid and that you, you understand that yours is an incomplete method as well. But there's a, but there's a gesture towards well, what, what it would look like. Susan, one of the things you said, let me pick up here, and something I want to interject that I think is important, especially for students out there and, and you know, our graduate students and others, right? That it was you know, daunting task to take this on. Uh, but we didn't hesitate to be critical of the previous work in a respectful way to, as you say, acknowledge the contribution and even our own work, right? You know, so we were criticizing what we had done and that we hadn't gone far enough. And, you know, and, and you know, all of us had promotions ahead of us 
while we're doing this work. It is sort of crazy to think you're going to criticize your own work when you have reviews coming up. I think that's the honest way to approach what we do in this business. And we did that. And I think that's one of the things that I like most about the collaboration and the exchanges we had along the way, that we were not afraid to say, hmm, we did this and let's talk about what we did and how it's not completely satisfying uh, for these questions that are out there. I have to wonder also, Gary, if you had to do that. In other words, the the people making some of the mistakes perhaps have to be the people who can understand both technically and conceptually how one would change that. And so, but that's a remarkable thing to say about promotions because I think that's the reality, right? I think that in political science, there is an ins- professional incentive to stay in your lane, travel fast, don't switch lanes because then you'd have to hit the brakes a little bit and it might be messy. And I think that what this book seems to be the result of some of some messiness. Um, m- let me ask you actually how the three of you came together to to write this book. How do you know each other? How was how this book conceived? And, and maybe share a little bit about what each one of you did on the project. Um, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll start out like how, how far back do you want to go? <laughs> as far back as you want to go. And, and I'll just say to listeners, everyone's smiling here. So hopefully there's a good origin story that we're going to unpack. Right. Um, well, I mean, quite honestly, uh, you know, it feels like going back quite a long time to when Carrie and I first met. Uh, which was, I, I think, straight out of grad school. Um, and we discovered that, I think, at, at a Southern Political Science Association panel, you know, <laughs> that we were doing very similar research. And, um, you know, and, and uh, interestingly enough, you know, Carrie's research uh, was... Uh, predominantly along the lines of race and ethnic uh, ethnic politics and race and representation, and my research was predominantly along the lines of women's representation. So, it, I mean, in some ways, it kind of all started there. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, we were sort of living living examples of how these two bodies of research were uh, proceeding in parallel tracks. And, and so, you know, from the very, very beginning, sort of we came together to come together <laughs> and to bridge those, um, to try to bridge those divides. Um, and, uh, you know, and then, it, and then it just kind of went from there. Um, we, uh, um, uh, kind of got eventually sort of got our first projects off the ground and, and got tenure. And then after that, uh, you know, that's when we really came together and decided, okay, you know, we need to do a project on race, gender, and, and representation. Um, and we, you know, we applied for, uh, and after several tries, finally got an NSF grant. Um, and uh, to really, it, to collect the data. 
which was uh, a v- extremely um, labor intensive <laughs> uh, procedure, and that's where how Kirsten sort of came into the came into the picture. And so, Kirsten, I can let you sort of take it take it from there if you if you want. Yeah. So I came into Emory um, really wanting to study political representation, and so Beth was a natural person to gravitate to as an advisor. Um, so I started working with her my very first year in the program, and as a research assistant on this project. Um, and I think. Um, through the process of seeing how the work was being done, um, through my experience as a legislative advocate and my familiarity with legis- the legislative process and, and the language of bills, I, I think I came to have a, a unique perspective on the project that Carrie and Beth in their infinite generosity welcomed um, and embraced. And I feel so honored to have been um, recognized in in the contributions I was able to make and and added on to the project. Um, I think probably a couple of years after I started working with you all on it. Yeah, you know, and, and Kirsten made a you know important intellectual contribution to the project. You know, is why she's a co-author on the project. I right? started as a research assistant, but uh, made a real intellectual contribution in shaping uh, the work and this final product. Uh, so she's like co-equal, co-author with, with Beth and I. Uh, and again, you know, that's another important thing that came out of this, right, that we learned as much from our students in doing some of this work as, you know, they learned from us. And that, in this case, was really uh, a, a outcome that is, for me, that I uh, cherish. Uh, and Kirsten, you're you're one of many guests who have a second act, and because of that second act, are bringing, a, a, you know, a very different viewpoint. I think I think of of your type of uh, uh, trajectory a little bit like Sandra Day O'Connor, like the only person who actually was in a legislature and was willing to say to people. Okay, like legislative intent here. That's ridiculous. Like nobody's going to stand in the middle of the of the room and say like we're discriminating right now. So you need to be a little bit more nuanced. And so I, I think it's really important these second biographies and 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 what they bring to political science. So I think that really does add an, another. I honestly didn't know that until I was writing up the bios, and then I thought, okay, that makes some sense of some stuff in here. I'm sorry, Beth, you wanted to get in. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, you had said at the very beginning something about how um, uh, the the lengthy collaboration, uh, you know, that generated um, this book sort of flies in the face of uh, normal academic careers (laughs) and and procedures, you know, uh, or career paths in which, you know, as you said, especially, um, you know, in which you just want to get out as much, you know, publish as much as possible and, and, and da, 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 da. But I think in many ways, um, this project, uh, benefit, you know, and, 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 and staying on, on a, a narrow, you know, straight pathway. And I think in many ways, at least, at least, um, uh, certainly for me and, and, and for Kirsten, I think we very much benefited from the ability um, 
to branch out um, and uh, and so so uh, you know Kirsten and I both benefited from the fact that uh, that I was able um, f- to you know, I could start out by teaching courses on gender politics and and move to teaching courses on the politics of race and gender. <laughs> and so uh, both at the graduate level and the undergraduate level and and so much of what went into this book, uh, like Carrie said, was a product of all of those interactions um, with all of those students in 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 our classes, um, and being able to sort of even even at times being you know at times being able to to share our research with them um, to uh, but just to sort of um, listen to them and, and, and discuss the research, uh, with them. Um, and I think we, we learned a great deal. Um, uh, and, and especially a great deal about, um, uh, like I said, about how to, uh, study race and gender together and intersectionally. Well, let's jump into the book. Um, it's a it's a big book. We won't be able to do all of it, and you know, in our a podcast. But um, let let's do what we can. The you start with uh, what you call the political geography of descriptive representation, and we've thrown around some um, uh, terms which many of the listeners know, and many of them don't. So I'll have you um, uh, help us with that, but. You know, in this in the first substantive chapter, what you're trying to figure out is, you know, which legislative environments and you're looking at these state legislatures, just to be clear, and which institutional structures, you know, promote descriptive representation of women of color and, you know, do the tools normally used by political scientists to look at that help us understand what is happening in those state legislatures. So let, let's start with some basics, which, um, so we'll go all Hannah Pitkin um, as, you know, what is descriptive representation? Why do we care about it? Uh, and, 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 and give us some overview, again, the short version of what you're doing in that first substantive chapter to start building the argument. So descriptive representation is the idea that um, people uh, benefit from seeing representatives who share central characteristics with them, right? So um, having legislators who are women benefit women and having legislators who are people of color benefit people of color. Um, And so one of the reasons we think there's a benefit of descriptive representation is that it, we hope, and the research suggests that it will lead to better substantive representation, that we're going to have bills introduced that recognize the unique needs of different parts of the community. And so the greater the diversity we have in our elected bodies, the more likely it is, we think, that people are going to see their needs being met by those elected bodies. And so a lot of the race and gender literature looks at whether or not that actually happens and has found prior to our work 
fairly consistently that women are doing the work to substantively represent women and that people of color are doing the work to substantively represent their own um, communities. And what we hope we're adding here is this additional nuance that the people that seem to be most committed to representing multiply marginalized groups are women of color. Yeah, and I'll just add to that, that with the descriptive representation, there are some benefits outside of the legislative institution, as Kirsten described. And that is for folks to see people who look like them in positions of power and decision making, uh, you know, build some trust in our institutions and our uh, process. Uh, and I think that's an important benefit that some research has shown as well, that folks are more likely to be engaged <clears throat> in, in the process. Uh, and supportive of democratic institutions and norms and practices when they see folks who look like them in these institutions. And what um, does your research end us telling us about the different legislatures? And actually, I will ask you just because we have some people who will want to know this, uh, how many you were looking at, how many state legislatures you were looking at, and why you chose those particular ones, like not the long version, but the short version. So that, uh, and, and, and a little bit on the answer to the question, like, where is it that this is actually more successful? Where are people more likely to get elected if they are women or minorities or both? Okay, so I'll, I'll answer the question about uh, descriptive representation. So, so in the second chapter, you know, that's kind of those are the questions that we're trying to address. Like, why are some state legislatures more race and gender diverse than others, and uh, and also why are some constituencies? Uh, so we're looking at it both the state at the state level and at the district level. So why are some constituencies more or less likely to elect women and minorities or women of color uh, to to public office? Um, and uh, so, but the political geography part of that comes in where we're looking not so much at sort of individual candidate motivation or ambition, but we're looking at it from the perspective of, I think what Carrie mentioned as institutional constraints. Um, and uh, so uh, so the women in politics literature suggests that you'll find more women uh, in more liberal uh, states or districts um, in uh, uh, more in less um, uh, professionalized uh, legislatures uh, in states where uh, party control is uh, uh, um, where there's not as much party control over you know candidate recruitment. Uh, what else am I uh, uh, where? Um, uh, voters are, are uh, not only more liberal, but also uh, better off, more urban, et cetera, et cetera. The race and po- ethnic, ethnic poli- uh, politics literature basically tells us it's all about uh, how many uh, majority-minority districts <laughs> there are. In other words, it's all about sort of the, the number and concentration of uh, minority populations. Uh, 
um, so, so, you know, the question that, that didn't begs the question, so where does that leave women of color? <laughs> and what we found was that, um, uh, the things that are thought to constrain or, uh, or shape, uh, women's descriptive representation at the state legislature, legislative level, uh, tell us very little about uh, what what factors into uh, the political geography or the electoral fortunes of women of color. On the other hand, uh, women of color, we found, are just as closely tied to majority-minority districts as men of color are. Um, nonetheless... Uh, they're still less likely to get elected, even within um, those majority minority districts. So, so one of the one of the uh, sort of theories that we test was that uh, stating that uh, women of color have an advantage um, that their sort of intersectional position positionality sort of gives them uh, an an advantage, say, in a be able to attract crossover support, you know, both from uh, minority communities and from women. Right. Um, and we didn't really find much, if any, evidence <laughs> of that. So we concluded that that um, uh, women of color are, are not any less constrained by the sort of uh, institutional and demographic uh, um, imperatives, uh, but differently um, constrained. I think about this chapter all the time right now as redistricting is going on, because one of the things that's happening in a lot of states right now is a real dilution of majority minority districts as part of an attempt to gerrymander um, for certain party advantage. And I think we might see a real consequence of that in our descriptive representation based on our findings in this chapter. No, and thanks, Kirsten. You know, one of the things that you say at the end of your introduction is we handed in this manuscript and then, you know, the world of the pandemic happened and, you know, events keep going. So I'm I'm thrilled for readers of the book and potential readers of the book to, to have, and we'll do some of this at the end of the podcast, you know, your understanding of the book as politics continues. And um, that's a that's a, a really terrific insight as all of these states in very different ways are redistricting um, after this census, which was not something you had on the table as you were writing. Now, as you're talking, you're you're using all of these terms to describe groups and your next chapter is really focused on interrogating the ways in which we conceive of a group and who has a group interest so that we could figure out what it means to have people who look like us, to have descriptive representation, but also to have substantive representation as well. So you have amazing findings about uh, women of color's leadership and policymaking in this chapter. And, And I'd love for somebody to take us through how those conceptions of group interest and how rethinking them allowed you to make these observations. 
So what, one of the things that happens when you code bills as women's interest or as minority interest, um, Black interest or Latinx interest is that you start to see that these bills are not all created equal, right? But in so many studies, it is just given one of those codes. So we don't see how the codes interact with each other. And I think um, the experience of thinking through all of the things a bill can be, right? A bill is just like a person. A bill is not just one thing. It's about multiple things at the same time. And the process of thinking through that and what different combinations might mean was one of the most interesting. I mean, I'm probably... Um, Fortunately, your listeners might be more among the people who get excited about operationalization, but that is something that I thought was one of the most fun parts of collaborating on this book, was really thinking hard about what it meant um, to say that this bill fell in an interest area and how not all, for example, education bills, which have traditionally been considered to be a woman's interest, are created equal, right? And some of them may protect white children, for example, and not protect other children. And um, we need to acknowledge that in how we're thinking about those bills. And I think that's where the power of um, this approach comes in, because by coding the bill as everything it could be, we could then look at combinations of characteristics of the bill in the same way that we're looking at combinations of characteristics of the people. Oh, that's a really cool way of thinking about it, Kirsten. Thank you. <laughs> that's why we do the podcast so we can have like like you know, the fabulous book. And this book is so well written and so clear. And there are uh, uh, I have I have so many things underlined to import into uh, different classes of mind because you give such fantastic, uh, nuanced definitions of things or. Um, restate your conclusions in in such clear and helpful ways. So it's a beautifully written book. And I don't think suggest that it's not already clear in the book. But Kirsten, that's a great way to sort of like add to it. Um, Before we step away from the how the the group interests and that do do you want to say anything more about the specific findings in that chapter and whether they surprised you to find out how it is that women of color's leadership is a little bit different? Um, Sure, sure. So what we found actually, actually, interestingly enough, what we found directly contradicts those initial that footnote that Carrie uh, was talking about at at the very beginning. Um, uh, What we found was that um, no matter how you slice it, you know, basically, no matter sort of which kind of definition and operationalization of Women's issue, women's interests, black interests, Latinx interests. Um, you use women of color are always on the forefront. You know, they're never they're never in the background. They're always among uh, the most likely to be introducing those and sponsoring the uh, those bills. Um, and we also found that. Um, 
But you know, one of the things that we were particularly looking out for is whether sort of more narrow conceptions of group interests, uh, women's interests, black interests, Latinx interests, were sort of uh, the most problematic. In other words, were those the kinds of bills that were really sort of underestimating uh, the representational advocacy of women of color? Um, and and so uh, what we found, again, women of color were no less likely to be sponsoring these narrowly uh, defined bills that sort of conform to such a narrow conception of, of uh, group interests. On the other hand, they the the one the areas in which they were even more likely uh, to sponsor than any other race gender group of, of legislators were sort of in the kind of area, general areas of health and education, which are of overlapping interest uh, to all three groups, right? Um, and then further building on that and taking advantage of all the different sort of configurations of group interests uh, and, and bill sponsorship operationalization that Kirsten was talking about, what we found is where women of color really stood out is in sponsoring legislation, health and education bills that address specifically uh, addressed um, women and or minorities um, uh, in them. So it was kind of that combination of a kind of a targeted um, uh, approach to a more kind of uh, policy area that is thought to be of general interest uh, to both women and minority communities. If I can add quickly here that, you know, my students always ask me when I teach this book and this work, well, so why did you decide that this is a black interest and a women's interest uh, area? And so we rely on, on previous research, right? And I say to my students, it's some choices that we make as the researchers in the project. We're very clear about that uh, in the work. Uh, but there are some, you know, subjective and objective measures of, of group interest. Uh, there are some studies that have asked legislators, what are your priorities, right? And you look and you see men and women tend to have different sets of priorities. We rely on that type of definition of interest as well as making some determination as the uh, informed researchers about what's in a group's interest, right? I can look at black communities and as a learned person who studies these issues, make a determination about what's in that group's interest in terms of policy. So my students always ask, I think it's important to address that. Someone else doing this, <clears throat> looking at the same legislation might code them differently. Uh, so, we made some decisions. We have the explanations out there as part of the the book as to why we made those determinations. What we did, the code book is available as well as those descriptions of the of the bills. Um, and I love the transparent. Oh, sorry, Kirsten. Oh, I didn't mean to I love the transparency, Carrie, about decision making. You know, I feel like as a graduate student, uh, I often would go to a presentation and. People would present the methodology as objective and as just giving us an answer without admitting the decisions that they were making 
and critically interrogating it. It was one of the things that made me sort of repulsed by quantitative methods at the time. Was like, and and it's been it's it's taken me decades of reading work like yours. So thank you to sort of realize. Well, that's actually not necessarily how it's it's done. X plus Y does not equal Z. People are making decisions, and um, and I think it's remarkable how how all of you use your students as this sort of um, audience for explaining to non-specialists what it is that you're doing, why you're doing it, the decisions that you're making, and, and explaining the research outcomes. If you can do that, then you can clearly explain it to any political scientist. Kirsten, I'm so sorry. I, I That's okay. You, you had asked um, what were the surprising findings for us in this chapter. And I will say my surprise in this chapter was related to the Republican women. So um, as you know, from looking at the book, um, in order to deal with the fact that um, women's issues might be conceptualized differently, for example, by Republicans and Democrats. For the body of most of our analyses, we look primarily at Democratic legislators. Um, And so, but we do test on our very small number of um, women of color who were Republicans in our sample to see whether these things travel across party lines. And in regard to the health and education findings in particular, we do find that they do. So even though we have a very small N of women of color who are Republicans in the states that we looked at, um, we do see this same leadership around health and education legislation um, that seems to be um, consistent regardless of a party affiliation, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, no, that's terrific. So the the book, you know, and I keep saying it's quantitative, and then I sort of apologize because that's actually a mischaracterization of what's going on in the book. I mean, the the book has like you know a, a, one of the central chapters for you know comes from a PRQ hard quant type research, but. The book is also qualitative and you are very, very careful to look at the ways in which um, if you look at intersectional theorizing in law and public policy, that can help you examine how these bills that, um, as Carrie said, you define as women's interest or black interest or Latinx interest, you know, can be can be imagined to be, you know, uh, um, formulated to address concerns, but you need to look at whether or not you can actually, uh, as Kirsten said earlier, look at a person as one thing or look at them as uh, multiply, uh, multiply burdened, I think is the term that you, that you use in the book. I might be remembering that wrong. Please correct me if I am. So say a little bit more about um about how you're also using qualitative methods and how that intersects with the the quantitative as well. Um, So for me, one of the most fun chapters to write was the book where we look qualitatively closely at the bills. Um, So we went through a process of trying to match legislators within a same state year Um, that had similar district characteristics. Um, And it turned out that there were only really three states in which we could do that and have enough variety of 
um, race, gender characteristics to compare in similar districts. So we ended up doing that in California, Texas, and New Jersey, um, and taking a deep dive into the look uh, to look at the actual content of the legislation in more detail for legislators um, who um, shared these district characteristics in terms of, you know, economics, in terms of being majority minority districts, in terms of um, sort of similar urban versus rural um, settings. And um, it was really fun to read some of these proposals that women of color were putting forward as far back as 1997 that people today treat as like shiny, bright new ideas. <laughs> like It is this really amazing reminder that women of color have been doing this work and um, saying these things um, longer than we have been listening to them. Um, and so um, what we did was for this um, matched set of legislators in each of these state years, we read every bill that they introduced from front to end. We looked at who those bills would really benefit, who they would really harm, to see what the sort of shape of legislation was and whether it was different substantively, not just in who it represented, but in how it represented them. And what we found is that there is, uh, a real difference, um, particularly in the bills introduced by women of color. Uh, one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that um, they don't only recognize different interests um, in their legislation, but they recognize that those interests are affected by multiple systems, right? So they introduce bills that address both housing and substance abuse, or both criminal law and family law in the same legislation, because they recognize that those things overlap and intersect, um, and that to solve one problem, you have to address the other as well. Um, so those were some of the highlights for me. I don't know, Beth or Carrie, we all did this dive together. Yeah, and I think you we could have you know, learned some of those outcomes without having done the qualitative piece, right? That was masked by, could be masked by simply a quantitative analysis. For example, we found so when Black women would introduce bills about crime, right? They would want to punish the offense but in the same piece of legislation, they would often say there should be some drug treatment for the incarcerated, right? So it was not just punishing crime, but the recognition that criminal behavior is often connected to other kinds of social ills. And they tried to, we, we saw the legislation to address both, punish the crime, but also treat uh, the perpetrator uh, if they needed substance abuse treatment or uh, education, getting a GED in prison and, and things of that sort. Um, the last chapter of the book looks at one particular policy, uh, which is the reaction of state legislatures to the federal act that was passed in 1996 called the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act, which was meant to uh, um, reduce welfare in the states and a lot of scholars have looked at how African-Americans and Latinx state legislators were able to you know, mitigate some of the restrictions placed at the federal level. But you're asking the question, which 
should be expected by this time in the book, whether the presence of and the power of women in state legislatures had a similar effect. And, and you're trying to test, in a sense, the two approaches. And, and you know, this is such a great chapter because um, it really clarifies the impact of your methodology on our understanding of a substantive issue. And, you know, and, and before we chat a little bit about the conclusions and also uh, what you're doing next, um, tell, tell us a little bit about that chapter uh, and, and what the, the findings were, what surprised you. Yeah. So even though that chapter sort of is placed at the, or that research is comes at the end of the book, um, that actually was an article, you know, that that uh, came out some time ago, and 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 that research and that article in particular, I think, ended up being very formative. Uh, in ter- especially in terms of how we were approaching and thinking about and doing intersectional research. And it really, as you said, it sort of really encapsulates our overall approach to how to to demonstrate not only what intersectional research is and what it looks like, but what it can do for us. In other words, (laughs) how how it uh, can improve upon um, our single axis uh, approaches and 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 the way that we do that in that uh, last chapter and really kind of throughout the book, but it's really sort of encapsulated in that last chapter, is by basically doing single axis and intersectional analysis side by side uh, and comparing the results, um, uh, comparing what what it is that we learn that we can learn um, from from each approach. And um, and that just really kind of um, uh, came through uh, in the process of, of doing that the research um, uh, in and around uh, welfare, you know, state welfare policy outcomes. Um, so we sort of, you know, go through the motions, if you will, of doing a single axis or additive approach of just kind of adding in a very, you know, basically adding in a dummy variable for gender uh, <laughs> and, uh, and seeing what we get uh, versus a more intersectional approach, um, which uh, not only entailed you know, which on the face of it simply means rather than having, you know, two dummy variables, basically one for race and one for gender, we break it up so that we're comparing sort of the presence and power of women of color to that of men of color, to that of white women, to that of white men. Um, And, but, uh, but at the same time, we, Again, in doing that chapter, writing and doing that chapter and rewriting that, that uh, chapter, you know, it was at that point that we came to realize that um, it, intersectionality or intersectional research is even more than that. It's even more than, you know, how we set up our models. It goes all the way back to uh, how not only the literature that we le- read, but how we read it and what we read it for, 
you know, because we were noticing that, you know, people were reading the the literature on, you know, say the history of welfare policy uh, in the U.S. And, you know, they would read the same work and see it as a work about race <laughs> or, you know, other people would read the same work and see it as about a story about women, you know, <laughs> um, and, and rarely would they see it as a story about women of color. And so that too was what we wanted to kind of bring out um, in that, in, in that chapter and, and illustrate. Um, so, do you want it? Do you want it? A, do you want it a little a little snippet of what we actually found, right? <laughs> sure. And before you do that, I'll just say, like, one of the best things for me about the podcast is when authors are transparent about the writing process and the research process. And I just want to thank the three of you for the candor here, because you know the the idea that the last chapter is really the first thought that leads to the other <laughs> chapters. It works beautifully in the book. It looks as if like this is the trajectory to come to this example. <laughs> the fact that it needs to be redone. The, all of this, I think, is really important for listeners as authors and listeners as readers uh, and listeners as students of politics. So, so kudos for the transparency. I really appreciate it. But yeah, please continue. Sure. So, uh, and this chapter just provides one of the best illustrations, uh, I think, of uh, sort of the distinctive uh, impact of women of color. Because um, what we what we found was that um, it wasn't really uh, all uh, uh, black or Latinx legislators who were having that mitigating, you know, who were mitigating sort of the more punitive and miserly effects of welfare reform and and it wasn't all women uh who who were doing that either um it was really you know it was women of color who the presence and power of women of color in state legislatures that was really having the most consistent and the most powerful uh, uh, mitigating effect on the adoption of welfare policy in, in the states. And uh, one of the most striking um, illustrations of this had to do with the effect on uh, just the, the amount of cash benefits uh, provided, you know, we found that the presence and power of white women actually had a negative effect on the level of cash benefits, whereas the presence and power of women of color had almost the exact opposite effect, uh, a positive effect of increasing um, the cash uh, benefits of, of TANF. And the number or reducing the number of restrictions on access to those benefits. So some of the administrative burden of accessing the benefit, which I think is really important. Being eligible, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So as we've said, people have to hand in a manuscript at some point and the politics continues. So uh, you have a concluding chapter that's just Terrific, actually. I wish I read it before the introduction and then reread it. Um, it was like because because I think you, like I think I thought the introduction was so clear, and I thought it was, and then I got to the conclusion, and I was like, wow, that is 
amazing. I think often conclusions are an afterthought. I often think they're very poorly written. No offense to many authors out there. And this is one is not. So, but rather than repeating some of the conclusions, I, I want to also invite you to to talk a little bit about about how you've been thinking about the book since it's out and um, and just you know where you leave this at this point. And then we'll talk about what each one of you is doing right now because I know you've all got new projects. You know, one of the things that I've been thinking about uh, and I've thought more about in the course of this conversation is this issue of how uh, the issues that these women of color uh, advocate and advance tend to last over time. Right? You, know, you know, Kirsten gave an example of things that showed up in 1997 are now bright and shiny today. How does that happen? Right? So oftentimes women of color are in the minority that pun is intended, right? Uh, not only are they uh, minority in a racial and ethnicity sense, but also sometimes in the uh, party minority in an institution. But we see these issues that they raise ended up on the agenda, uh, in the policy over time. Uh, so just that evolution of an issue and an idea, how is it sustained over the course of the life of, of institutions? And what role women and the presence of women play in that evolution, that lasting power, that staying power, is something that I'm thinking about uh, that we that comes out of the book. So I, there are a couple of things that I mean. Every time we get together and talk, we have a million new ideas for how to extend this work and what we want to do with it next. And I, you know one of the things about working on this book is that, that it created more questions than it answered um, in a really good way, right? It it gave us a, a direction to go, but it, it feels like only the beginning. So one of the things I've been thinking a lot about um, and trying to figure out exactly how I would measure it is what the trade-offs are that women are co of color are undertaking, right? So they're providing this disproportionate representation of marginalized communities. What are they giving up to do that, right? Are they giving up campaign contributions from businesses who want bills sponsored for their interests? What, it, it, by taking on this burden for us, <laughs> What are they giving up? Are they giving up anything? It seems like in a limited pool of time and resources, trade-offs matter, right? And so what are the consequences of that for these legislators as they um, do this very important work? Beth, what are you thinking? Um, <laughs> I was actually thinking about... Um, how when uh, we were putting the final how the we were how we were putting the final touches on the book in May and June of 2020 uh, um, in the you know smack dab in the midst of uh, killing of George Floyd uh, and and many others and the you know and the rise of Black Lives Matter and and all the uh, you know uh, marches and uh, and activism for racial justice uh, or uh, you know against racial injustice. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, 
you know, and we, we were sort of, I mean, in, in, in some ways it felt like we were sort of caught, you know, like deer in the headlights, um, uh, where we, we felt like this is so pertinent to what we are writing about. Um, yet it's so, it's, um, it's so imminent, you know, and, and so rapidly developing that, that, that we didn't really quite know what, what to make of it. Um, and we didn't, you know, and, and, and we weren't really quite sure how, how, or whether or how we, we could address it, you know, in the moment, at the moment. And so we, we ended up after much deliberation, sort of writing a very brief sort of June twenty twenty epilogue. I think is is sort of what we what we did, uh, sort of tacked it on to the end of the first chapter. Uh, and our hope at the time was that uh, was that our research would really um, speak to uh, the. Um, the role of state legislators and and women of color in state legislatures, in particular, in addressing um, these uh, these very very pressing these what seemed at the time to you know what were at the time very pressing issues, but as we've been talking, issues that you know they weren't new. Um, they had been around for a long time, which was, you know, emblematic of the, the incredible, you know, depth of the problems. Um, so I think, you know, we're sort of very much kind of continuing, I, I think much of what, what we've already said kind of reflects how, um, uh, how, how we look at the research now, you know, through the lenses of 2020 um, and also sort of the intersecting dynamics of the pandemic uh, and how that, you know, sort of reveals sort of the, uh, uh, the destruction of intersectional um, uh, marginality and injustice. And so, um, so I think, you know, Again, it just really sort of continues to highlight uh, sort of the the representational uh, activity, power, and significance of women of color in in particular, both in the pe- past, present, and and hopefully future. And I and as I read the postscript, and it may be wrong, was that the intention was, look, we do data and we do this carefully and. We don't have the data to discuss something that has come about after we finish this manuscript. So what we want to do is say, we're not ignoring this, but we're not in a position at this moment to say anything. I mean, I, I, I don't know if this overlaps at all, but with the number of women moving out of the workforce, will that actually affect the number of women who are willing to be state legislators in the first place? Will they will they quit their jobs at the same rate that women are quitting had, had quit their jobs to take care of older people, family members, Zoom school, etc.? I mean, there you just seem to, in my sense, be saying this is very very important, and we we can't now, but perhaps we will. 
Um, let me close by asking you each what your new projects are. And um, I know I don't know if you also have continuing projects together, but but I'm really interested in in what you're what you're all up to and thinking about now. Kirsten, you want to go first? Sure. Um, we do actually have a new project that we are just getting started on together. Um, thinking about how some of the work that we have already done interacts with individual ideology a little more closely. So I talked about some of the surprises being about the Republicans um, and, and the fact that women of color seemed to be leading on issues despite ideology and sort of looking at some older work by um, Hero and I never say his name right. So somebody help me. <laughs> Priest. Uh, Hero and some older work by Hero and Priest where they identify that um, for representatives of color, um, that connection is stronger than the partisan connection. And so um, we want to look at that through an intersectional lens. So we have a paper that we're working on um, right now that is, is examining that issue. In terms of my own scholarship, I have moved into a role where I'm teaching primarily law and courts classes. So I'm thinking a lot about um, the court context and intersectionality in the courts. I'm really excited about the prospect that we might get our first uh, Black woman Supreme Court justice um, and this real shift that might be coming in terms of not just the number of women on the court, but the number of people of color on the court. Um, and I have a couple of projects that are looking at, um, there's some really great research about interruptions of women at the Supreme Court, both of justices and of um, and of lawyers advocating before the court, but nobody's ever done it for race. So I have a couple of projects where we're engaging with that. We're also looking at how the format of the Supreme Court's arguments during COVID might have changed those dynamics. Wow. Okay. As somebody who does court stuff, I'm I'm very excited to to see that somebody is going to look at that. That's just terrific. Beth, what what are you working on now? Um, can I, Susan, can I quickly give a shout out? My my co-authors on the on that work are um, Devin Thurman at Emory for the COVID paper and Elizabeth Lane at LSU. And I just want to acknowledge them. Oh, please. Thank you so much. Always. Um, yes. Yeah, so, uh, so my research sort of really um, takes off it, it, uh, in part um, from uh, that last chapter on welfare reform, actually, and um, looking more closely at, um, at power, uh, uh, race, gender, and legislative power and influence, um, as, uh, kind of, um, and, and sort of coming at it by thinking about that, how that might very well be key to, uh, uh, the relationship between descriptive and substantive representation. Um, and so, uh, so I'm very interested in, uh, first of all, just looking at leadership, selection and how intersections of race and gender uh, shape that um, from, you know, asking questions not, not only about, you know, who's, who's more or less likely to 
get a leadership position in state legislatures, either a party leadership position or a committee chair, but also how those positions uh, themselves are sort of race and gendered um, and, and how uh, sort of career paths, if you will, or paths to power within legislatures may be race and gendered. Um, as well. So, uh, so I'm starting off by, like I said, looking at uh, sort of uh, processes and outcomes of leadership selection. Uh, eventually, I want to also look at um, bill passage or legislative effectiveness as a as also as a as a measure of power and and influence. And again, how that is shaped by intersections of race and gender. Wow, fabulous, Carrie. Yeah, so a couple of things. Um, with a couple of colleagues here at Duke, uh, we're beginning to reimagine the American South, what we think we know about the American South. For political scientists, the standard work and the standard bearer is still a 1949 publication by B.O.T. Uh, and that has shaped uh, you know, almost every piece of subsequent research on the South is sort of built on that model that uh, he formulated. Uh, and we sort of looking back to see, did he get it right? I mean, and how does it stand to test the time, what we know about the South today and putting key in conversation with some other authors, Ralph Bunch in particular, who's a African-American, the first African-American to get a PhD in political science. Bunch was very active on the gunner murder study that became an American dilemma. Spent a lot of time doing uh, ethnographic field work here in the South uh, and didn't publish much because he very quickly became part of the diplomatic corps in the U.S. Women Nobel Peace Prize uh, uh, for his work on the Arab-Israeli conflict. But there are papers and archives about Bunch's findings and his thoughts about the American South, right in roughly about the same time as, as B.O. Key. So we have this black political scientist, this white political scientist looking at the South. What are the stories there? So that's one project that I'm getting into. Another coming out of the work we've done together that led to this book is to think about, you know, not all women of color are the same, right? We to see if we can, so they're generational. I'm really interested in generational differences, particularly of African-Americans, uh, you know, sort of the woke generation. Uh, and what does that mean for the present and future of representation of racial issues, right? Do they see these things in similar fashions? Do they approach them in similar fashions? Uh, there are some, you know, uh, evidence that there may be some real differences here in terms of how you approach these matters uh, in these institutions. So I'm going to figure out how we can take a look uh, at these generational differences and even some differences across the different states. States are not the same either. Wow. Okay. Well, when all of these projects are out, I can't wait to have you back individually and together on New Books and Political Science. I've been so happy to be talking to Carrie L. Haney, Beth Reingold, and Kirsten Widener about their book, Race, Gender, and Political Representation Toward a More Intersectional Approach, Oxford University Press 2021. And we'll look forward to their other articles and, and books forthcoming. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.